from home. I'm Mariah Humston, and this is the Daily Orange Podcast. Today, faculty responses to COVID changes. Last chance for change. What community activists want the city to know? And teamwork, leadership, and balance. How some ROTC cadets manage athletics and military training. It's Tuesday, September 1st, 2020. The university's aspirations with regards to having face-to-face classes are unrealistic. So I'm kind of excited just because this is providing an opportunity to try something I never really would have had a reason to try, you know, outside of a pandemic. I would be shocked if if we didn't have to shut down. For me, the ideal would have been that we were just online because I don't think that this experiment is going to last very long. I'm Michael Sessa, and I'm an assistant news editor with The Daily Orange. All right, Michael, classes are officially back in session at Syracuse University, and you talked to professors about their thoughts on university changes with COVID-19 this semester. Architecture professor Lori Brown is optimistic about the year, but she also said to you that she's skeptical about some of the changes that are going to occur. What are some of her thoughts? Yeah, so I think Professor Brown's kind of point of view is what a lot of professors' point of view is, which is trying to make the best of a situation that's not so great. Uh, Professor Brown, for example, opted to hold her classes using like an online hybrid format, and the in-class part of those classes will meet outside. So SU installed a bunch of tents, I think like 21 outdoor teaching tents on Main and South Campus for this sort of stuff. So they'll, they'll teach out there for now. And she likes that because, you know, in the spring semester when SU went online, it was difficult to manage things virtually and she saw a lot of burnout from students. So, you know, having that face-to-face interaction and especially in the outdoors is beneficial. It becomes more complicated, though, with discussions where you have some of the class present and some of the class virtual. So it's hard to teach in that format. And uh, they're not quite sure exactly what will happen once it gets too cold to be sitting outside in a tent. And so while there are these online and hybrid options, there are some classes and courses for specific majors that you do need to have a lot of hands-on interaction. Specifically, you talked to Professor Laura Heyman, who is in the Department of Transmedia and the Art Photography program. Can you talk about what she's worried about with having to do these in-person classes still? Yeah, so I think that's a good example of obviously just based on how certain classes function and what you're learning, it it could be more difficult in some courses. First of all, in like photography courses, the labs and the coursework is very hands-on. You know, it's the instructors and the TAs actually, you know, over your shoulder showing you how to shoot things on the camera, pressing buttons for you. That sort of stuff obviously can't happen now. Another one of her concerns was just the length of some of the classes. So studio classes in the College of Visual and Performing Arts can be four hours or more long, and those are hosted inside at the moment. Some concerns about, you know, staying in the same room without, you know, the greatest ventilation and perhaps, you know, another class being in there beforehand. Air really doesn't have a chance to turn over, so it's a long time to be stuck in the same room with the same air. You also talked to 
David Larson, who's an associate professor and an environmental epidemiologist, and he is actually very optimistic about these changes. Can you tell me about that optimism? Yeah, so uh, Larson was one of the three or so faculty members that served on the Public Health and Emergency Management Subcommittee. So back in April, SU created this working group made up of uh, nine subcommittees that were tasked essentially with how to reopen. And each subcommittee focused on something different, whether it be like academics, health, infrastructure, stuff like that. So this group in particular was mostly just health professionals and various other administrators. Basically, the health professionals like Larson gave their opinion about what was feasible and how SU could open and what sort of policies it would, be, it would need to put into place. The reason he's so optimistic is because the policies SU put in place are not that similar to a lot of other schools. So while a lot of other schools focused on just repeated testing, it was the opinion of Larson and some of the other folks he worked with on the committee that repeating testing just wouldn't be that effective. And it also might take resources from the surrounding Syracuse community. Rather than do that, they thought they'd just test initially and then again through the semester as needed. So they really put a lot of infrastructure and money towards stuff like the wastewater management system, as well as contact tracing, so that when they find a case or suspect a case, they could really put the school on lockdown in that sense, rather than just continue testing people over and over. And so with that, while we do have this optimism, you also spoke to Professor Harriet Brown, who's a magazine news and digital journalism professor, who is just kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum, saying that these risks might not be worth it. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, so Harriet Brown joins a lot of professors, many of whom have gone online with their teaching this semester, who just don't believe that it's ethical or really intelligent for SU to bring students back to campus. So I talked to Professor Brown a lot about just how the courses would look. She communicated that she just didn't see that much of a benefit to being in person with masks and socially distanced. So she, for example, teaches a lot of classes, some on like diversity. So when discussions are, you know, intense or about, you know, sensitive subjects, she really wasn't sure that she'd be able to have an effective class without being able to see each other's faces and really get deep into discussion. And that's something that a lot of professors expressed that students are pushing for being back on campus, but perhaps they're not really aware of what that in-person experience looks like since it's so different. You also spoke to Professor Mark Rupert, who's a political science professor, and he lives in the university neighborhood. And he is seeing that while things might be handled well on campus, we also have to look at students living off campus. Can you explain what he has been seeing? Professor Rupert lives, uh, like you said, near Syracuse and talked about all the parties and gatherings and stuff he's already seen uh, with lots of kids pouring into the street, many not masked. So I think his point is a concern that also came up a lot in our discussions with faculty and staff. As much as SU could do on campus, it's really about what happens when students socialize with each other, most of which happens off campus. And Professor Rupert pointed out that it, it really doesn't take much. You have one big party that a lot of people attend, and you suddenly transfer the virus like crazy that way. It's easy for SU to kind of see itself as this bubble, but there is the reality that it is pretty easy to transmit this thing once you have it. 
And so can you also speak a little bit about some of the remarks that Vice Chancellor Mike Haney has been saying about Syracuse's COVID-19 response? Mike Haney's kind of spearheaded SU's response, and he's kind of been on the forefront of communicating about student behavior and how that's important to this conversation. And at, at times, he hasn't been viewed so popularly by some of the faculty and students. So after there was this large gathering of 100 plus students on the quad a few days before classes, he came down hard with a pretty scathing letter talking about how you should properly distance and all of that stuff. And I think that had the effect of sort of irritating some faculty who sort of see that behavior as fairly expected. So there was a lot of discussion about SU kind of positioning themselves to place blame on students rather than to actually accept responsibility for being the ones who bring those students back to campus in the first place. So while we're hearing different emails and responses from Vice Chancellor Mike Haney and other SU administration, faculty are worried that their voices are not being heard. Can you speak a little about what some faculty members told you? Yeah, so this was probably the most dominant theme, I think, talking to faculty and staff. I think basically everyone recognizes that SU officials were kind of in an impossible position here. I don't know that there's too many professors who envy administrators right now, but the basic sentiment was SU set up all these committees and there was very few faculty involved in those committees. And when there was, the committees and the university took drastic actions without much faculty input. And that has to do a lot with their initial decisions. So faculty, for example, being brought on to committees after the decision is made to reopen campus and after SU kind of drops down these overarching mandates about how the semester will go. Uh, one of the main things that came up was whether professors would be expected to teach in person or if they could teach online or hybrid. We talked to or got some statements from the interim provost, John Liu, who reiterated that SU has always said it's the professor's choice how they want to teach, but there's some mixed messaging there. So SU sent a variety of emails to all of its staff uh, where they said that it's the expectation that the majority of fall semester courses will feature in-person teaching. So that runs kind of contradictory to you know, what they were being told. There's definitely variability in terms of where you're at. So some of the tenured professors felt comfortable taking all their classes online, but then there were some non-tenured faculty and staff who felt like they probably shouldn't go up against the administration, probably should teach in person as not to make any enemies. And so what are professors hoping for with the future discussions concerning COVID-19? I think most basically just to have a greater voice to be actually at the table when these decisions are made, not just in terms of listening sessions or working groups, but actually being able to make the decisions themselves. So rather than just be invited to the table or be listened to on a Zoom meeting, uh, to actually have the power to craft some policy that works in their favor. Michael Sessa is an assistant news editor for The Daily Orange. You can read his article, Professors Question Students Return to Campus, Adapt to Online Learning, on The Daily Orange's website. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Of course, thanks for having me.
lots of people were very upset about George Floyd's death, and so the community organized to to show their outrage. Person in our city who has suffered police brutality and is still And Nathaniel Flagg, who was a Syracuse native, who just felt that somebody had to speak up and do something about it. And right about in early June, that's when he founded The Last Chance for Change in Syracuse. I'm Marnie Munoz, and I'm the race and gender beat reporter for The Daily Orange. So Marnie, what is Last Chance for Change? Last Chance for Change started as a protest group based in Syracuse. And at first, they were marching for the death of George Floyd. But They set out to march for 40 days straight in the city of Syracuse, and they marched all over, including Syracuse University's campus and just past the Chancellor Kent Severus house. Since then, they've transitioned into this longer-term approach to making their own impact on the Syracuse community. They feed the homeless every week, and in the fall, as it continues to get colder, Flagg told me that he's looking forward to handing out coats for the homeless in Syracuse. And you talked to Nathaniel Flagg, and he's the founder for Last Chance for Change. What did he say about why he founded the organization and its purpose? So Nathaniel Flagg had never done protest organizing before. This was something that he just felt the need to do because he'd experienced so many of his own losses. He told me that he'd already lost several friends and family members to violence, And he felt that something needed to be done about it to show the city that he didn't want to have any more losses. He's buried so many friends and family over the past years and that he's said goodbye more than he said to hello to anybody and that he's tired. So all of that together, it culminated into this loss for him that he just felt that it was time for Last Chance for Change to step up to the plate and help solve the problem despite other organizations already existing in Syracuse because he felt like Last Chance for Change could really do something here. And what did Last Chance for Change do about a month after the marches concluded? Last Chance for Change was one of 15 organizations based in Syracuse that signed the People's Agenda for Police Reform, which was essentially a list of demands that local activists presented to the Syracuse Police Department and the mayor of Syracuse to look at in July. The mayor partially agreed to some of the terms, and not all of it has been completed as far as I understand, but it was really significant coalition of local activists trying to present their demands on what they wanted to, to reform the community of Syracuse. And so you talked to a senior at Syracuse University who joined the organizers early on in the protests. Tell me about her and how she was thinking about the protests. I spoke with Zahabu Gentile Rukera. She grew up in Syracuse, and it was important to her to attend because she said that she's aware of police brutality existing within the community, and she's done some activism in her high school years as well. And actually, Last Chance for Change organizers reached out to her, but it was something that she immediately wanted to be involved in. She'd originally attended a few protests before Last Chance for Change really formed concretely, and so it was something that she wanted to to be a part of to improve her community. She said that she sees activism as her passion and her calling and that she can't stand to to watch as injustice plays out in her own community. So that's what drew her into this movement. And so you mentioned this passion and she mentioned to you that she had actually given up her internship to protest. And not only that, but also a lot of organizers had lost their jobs in order to continue protesting. So what did she say allowed her and others to make that sacrifice. 
It's about her own passion for this issue that exists within the Syracuse community as a whole. And she felt like it was where she needed to be. She said it became part of her habit, part of her daily life routine to to be part of these protests. So she felt like that's where she needed to be calling for change. But she also said that she was disappointed that she had to be there in the first place because she didn't feel that she should be protesting for something that happens every day. And she said that sacrifice ultimately felt worth it because even though the list of names kept growing, it was motivational in a way for her to keep moving forward because she knew that it meant something. And so now what is the Last Chance for Change focusing on? So now Last Chance for Change is focusing on just organizing within the community and carrying out that long-term approach to healing the community. It's been a very traumatic year for the Black American population in the United States. And what Last Chance for Change organizers want to do is bring people together and, and start that healing process and starting young. Flag told me that He's trying to reach out to kids, especially in the community, because he wants them to know that they're not expendable. And the way that you teach somebody that, he said, is teaching them from the very beginning of their life that they mean something. And so Last Chance for Change is doing everything that they can, Flag said, to make the Syracuse community a better place. And so Nathaniel Flag is reaching out to community members and children within the community. What does he want? the city of Syracuse to know about Last Chance for Change? Well, what he told me is that he really wants people to know that he's not seeking recognition out of this, and neither are other members. He's doing this because it needs to be done. And he said that he appreciates the other orgs that are also doing the same kind of work in the city, but he feels that it wouldn't be right for him to just stand by and watch. And so he actually wants to see people clean up the city. He wants the parks to look like what they should look like. He wants the programs to be reinstituted to make the community a better place. He wants people to have opportunities and a way up. And so he wants to fix Syracuse from within because politicians are are there and their reputation's on the line. But the people who care most about the city are the ones who've lived in it their whole lives. And those are the people who are going to be most capable to make the changes that they need to see. Marnie Munoz is the race and gender beat reporter for The Daily Orange. You can read her amazing story, Last Chance for Change Members Hope to Make a Lasting Impact on the Community, on The Daily Orange website. Marnie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. One of the people I talked to was named Michael Hanushka. He graduated in 2020 and he did club rugby and ROTC and he kind of told me this story about how it wasn't his very first day but it was his first week where the lieutenant colonel who runs the program sort of took all the new cadets on a run and on that run they they stopped at different spots across campus and he said he distinctly remembered the Ernie Davis statue as like a place that they stopped because that's where the lieutenant colonel sort of talked about the importance of of branching out and doing different things because ROTC is obviously important and obviously they want to emphasize that, but they want their cadets to be doing so much more than that. I'm Roshan Fernandez and I'm an assistant sports editor for the Daily Orange. First, can you tell me about the history of the Syracuse ROTC program and its relationship historically with athletics? Yeah, so Syracuse University has the longest continually running program in the country. So they started in 1919, so that makes them 101 years old this year. And there's a long list of alums who have also been doing athletics, including like Jim Brown, Ernie Davis, those are the most most notable names. 
For those who are unfamiliar, what does the ROTC program entail? Um, yeah, so the ROTC program is, it's built so that you do four years of ROTC. When you graduate, you would serve four years in the military or more if you choose to, but at least four years in the military as an officer. A lot of cadets in ROTC are, are on a military scholarship, so the military is paying for their four years at Syracuse. And the program is, well, it's two things. It's physical training, which they do three times a week, normally for about an hour, an hour and a half. And that's like the 6 a.m., 6.30 a.m. workout. But the other part of it is the leadership skills. And so they have ROTC instructors who sort of teach various leadership labs. In particular, the sources I talked to talked about the leadership labs they have on Fridays and the different activities that they do during those to sort of build confidence and help prepare their cadets to be officers. And as you mentioned, with those 6 a.m. workouts, ROTC is strenuous and time-consuming. And for ROTC cadets who are also athletes, this is a lot of physical activity and time. What does this balance look like for the people that you spoke to? Yeah, so for the, the people I spoke to, I mean, they mainly talked about, they all emphasized how understanding both the ROTC instructors and their coaches for their sport were and they're obviously understanding of both because a lot of them they're coaches for rugby for rowing whatever they understand that rotc is something they're doing because of that's their future career or that's what they think their future career will be and then their rotc instructors understand they're doing athletics because it's something they enjoy and they should be branching out which they're which they're doing can you give me an example of what the schedule of an rotc cadet in athletics looks like so I talked to a rower named Madeline Gordon, and she she sort of emphasized how there were some days which were very difficult. There was one particular time she told me about where she woke up at 3.30 in the morning and did a 12-mile ruck. That's like a, a march where they carry like really heavy backpacks. And then after that ruck, she got on the bus and went to her rowing like competition at 8.30 in the morning. So I'm assuming that was a really long day for her. Obviously, there's extreme days for all of these athletes who are doing ROTC where, you know, they're waking up at 3.30 in the morning, they're doing three workouts, and then they're going to sleep at 7 p.m. She told me that, like, she's been to sleep probably earlier than 7 p.m. And she said that my sleep schedule is like a grandma because, like, she's just doing so much physical exercise all the time that, yeah, it's tiring. It's exhausting. But I guess what they all emphasized was that, like, Yes, it's super tiring, but it's worth it for all of them. Like McKenna Hassan, she also graduated in 2020, but she was the captain of the ESF soccer team. She talked to me about how, like, people think it's, they say it's crazy that she's doing both those things at the same time. But, like, for her, it's just, like, ROTC is her future. She loves playing soccer, so she doesn't consider soccer to be, like, work. So, like, it's worthwhile. And she, I mean, pretty much everyone said they would recommend it. Obviously, it's a big challenge, physically, mentally very exhausting, but yeah. And as we've been discussing, it seems that some main ideas with ROTC go hand in hand with athletics and is beneficial to an athlete's career. I'm curious about what are the similarities between these two programs and how do dual athletes and ROTC members benefit from doing both things at once? I mean, to cite rowing in particular, because I think everyone kind of agreed that rowing is a a sport which requires so much synchrony and so much of like teamwork just between the teammates because if everyone's not perfectly in sync and doing everything at the exact same time it's not going to work so with that being said like because rowing is set up like that 
ROTC and like leadership and being able to communicate with your teammates and having that confidence to say, you know, like, I need you to do this for me, or I need you to do this. And being able to stand up in front of your team or just even one teammate and say that is, is so important. And that's like a skill which you develop in ROTC and it translates to all sorts of athletics. Another thing that the rugby players told me about was that the way that ROTC sort of taught them respect, because obviously the military is very focused on respect for your commanding officer. And so when it when that translates to the rugby field, you know, when the coach is talking, you listen to what he's saying, you don't question what the coach is saying. And if you do have questions about it, it like in front of the entire team is not the place to address it. And so it's just that understanding that your commanding officer, your coach is doing their job and you're going to do your job. What did ROTC athletes that spoke to you say about the similarities between the two activities? Yeah, I mean, beyond the physical aspects and the leadership skills that obviously translate between the the two ROTC and athletics, the biggest thing that they all talked about was the family aspect of it. And they, they all talked about what it means to be part of two different families and how, I guess, in a way, those families are similar, but they're also so unique and so different. Michael Hanushka sort of told me that one of his instructors would always say that the army is the greatest fraternity in the world. And I, I just thought that was kind of funny, but that that's definitely true because the army sort of builds a bond where anytime two people are wearing the same uniform, they have that connection. And the same thing goes for athletics, where anytime you have a teammate, it doesn't matter whether you just met them, whether you've known them for 10 years, you still have that same connection. And sort of just the fact that you're working you're working so hard together, you know, on a cold, rainy day at training in ROTC or the same thing on the rugby field in rowing and whatever it is that builds a bond between two people, which is so strong. And I think that's why, you know, being part of those two families is so important to all of these these people. Roshan Fernandez is an assistant sports editor for the Daily Orange. You can read his story, ROTC Cadets Balancing Athletics Develop Leadership Skills, Camaraderie, on the Daily Orange website. Roshan, thank you so much for your time. A special thank you to Marnie, Michael, and Roshan. Thanks to executive producer and podcast editor Elizabeth Kama and to our producers Adam Garrity, Catherine Ito, Kylie Herlilly, and Lucas Sirio. And as always, thank you for listening. We'll see you next Tuesday.